this day. But it is the Lord's Day, and we have the privilege of praying together, of singing together, and those are delightful parts of worship. But we also have the privilege of looking to God's Word together. And um, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapters 20 and 21. Chapters 20 and 21. And um, for those of you guys that have been uh, part of our church for a long time, you know that one of the great challenges that I have is to try to be um, concise, especially with such long portions of Scripture. So I'll do my best, um, but I make no guarantees. We are entering into a number of dialogues. We're right in the middle of it all. In the sense that uh, uh, we know the story of Job. You know the story of Job. Even if you're not that familiar with scripture, you know the story of Job. That God literally allowed everything to go bad and to go horribly bad in his life all in a single day. All of his children killed. All of his livestock taken. Right? His house blown down, everything gone, servants killed. Um, then he breaks out like in these sores and, and his health is failing. His wife just says, I just give up. You know, It might be best for you to finally curse God and then let that end your life. And he himself is thinking, yeah, maybe death is a better option, but he doesn't feel like he should take his own life. He just feels like this has to end, and he's convinced that it's going to end. His friends gather around him, and at first, they have a ministry of presence. No speaking, just there. And then they begin to enter into this wisdom dialogue with him. They're trying to figure out, Job, why would all these things happen to you? What is happening in the course of your life that these things have happened? And in the beginning, they prod gently. And that was the first cycle of questions and dialogue and the question of sin and those kind of things, generally speaking. We are now in the second series of dialogues where each friend, Bildad, I'm sorry, Eliphaz, Bildad, then Zophar, will we'll ask questions, will assert in, uh, innuendos, and will we'll try to systematize what is happening to Job in terms of his great suffering. And as they do, Job responds, and their responses and their dialogue becomes more and more curt. And that means less polite, right? They start saying, okay, you think I'm an idiot? I kind of feel like you're an idiot, Right? Kind of like how we argue with our siblings, right? You're dumb. No, you're dumb. No, you're dumb, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that I've won an argument. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but sometimes we're just putting it out there. And what we have here is the difficulty, one, of Hebrew. Hebrew is difficult, y'all, right? And then you have Hebrew poetry. And I, I've told you guys, I find English poetry difficult, Right? Hebrew poetry on top of that. And Hebrew poetry that is intentional to be wisdom literature. And wisdom literature in the scriptures is sometimes the most difficult to understand or to principalize. Can I give you an example? We can find all sorts of examples in the book of Proverbs. Right? Raise your child in the way that he should go and in his own age he'll return to it. Is that a promise? Is that a promise that young children will be believers, will follow Jesus Christ if we raise them right? It's not. But is it just a truism? You know, just one of those general kind of things where we say, hey, you know, like probably better for you to do this than that. 
Let's do this. What, what causes wisdom literature to be beneficial to us from the scriptures? And wisdom is beneficial than foolishness. But certain decisions we make are better than bad decisions we could make. The book of Ecclesiastes makes that absolutely clear. But what else the book of Ecclesiastes and the books, like the book of Proverbs, it's not actually a book, it's a collection of all these Proverbs. The thing that God's wisdom constantly conveys to us and the key for, for gaining the wisdom that it's trying to give to us is the fear of the Lord. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes. I think we studied the book of Ecclesiastes as a church like 10 years ago. Maybe about 10 years It seems fresh to me, right? But it's about, maybe it's about 10 years ago. Um, but um, the book of Ecclesiastes ends, right? When, when all is said and done, here's the end. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. The book of Proverbs will say over and over again throughout, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So whatever we're supposed to do with all the data that we collect in the course of life, it must be directed to the fear of the Lord. And when wisdom, our wisdom, starts to lose that foundation, then it becomes merely a truism, a generally good moral suggestion. Or it becomes something that is overly cause and effect, formulaic. It becomes the religion of this. You have to do this. You have to do that. You can't be listening to that. You can't be watching that. You can't be doing that or eating that or smelling this or I, I don't know, whatever it is, right? Like we, we find formulas because we think it's a principle of Scripture and there might be some wisdom in it, but we always must be mindful that wisdom without the fear of the Lord turns into mindless, religious, human effort. This is really the base of what we're talking about when we enter into um, these dialogues between Job and his friends. They're trying to systematize suffering and wickedness. So that's what we're calling the sermon this morning, systematizing wickedness. This is now round two of Zophar versus Job. So with all of that said... Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we will start to kind of quickly work through these two chapters of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that have gathered here um, in the house of faith to, to think about what it means to live in a world that is indeed broken. Father, we recognize that when Job is saying, I am suffering and this is hard, that this is not a fable Job is not some, some fictional character. The scriptures affirm that Job was a real human being who lived a very difficult period of time, who suffered at a level that is so immense that only one other may have suffered as much as him. And when we recognize that, Lord, we recognize that his, his questioning is real, it's raw, but it's true and it's honest. And we see in it, Lord, the fact that true faith is not impervious to questioning and struggling and wondering. But we also recognize, Lord, that righteousness, even those that are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, do not find immunity from suffering in this life. 
So help us to apply wisdom, to not make assumptions on what is happening in our lives, to not make a direct correlation, a one-to-one of cause and effect of this has happened because you must have done this, or these things are happening because you are delightfully this, but instead to trust in your sovereign grace to be sufficient and to remember that through it all, it is always a reminder that we are not God and that we should fear God and that we should trust in his ways. So Lord, help us to understand that place of faith and help us, each one of us here, regardless of what is going on in the course of our lives, to recognize that God is sufficient and his evidence of love to us is given to us in Jesus Christ, his son. So we praise you and ask that you would open the scriptures and reveal your truth to us that we might grow in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're going to hear, right, um, because it's, um, it's the weekend and there's a lot of different sports going on, right? Whether it's baseball, they're, they're ramping up towards the playoffs, or it's college football and everyone loses their minds because they're, you know, in the beginning, everyone's great and everyone's perfect or everyone's terrible, right? Whatever your team is and however their record is, or it's NFL football and you're looking at your fantasy, fantasy stats or what, right? Like what you're going to hear from so many athletes, right? When things have gone good and in particular when things have gone bad, you're going to hear this phrase that we hear all the time. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for that sounds good. That sounds sovereignly good, right? It must. It must happen for a, we, for a reason. But here's the thing. What we assume in that statement, and the reason why I'm almost tempted always to say amen to that immediately, is because we assume that that reason is both knowable and that it's within the parameters of acceptability that I have set up for what that explanation must be. In other words, if, if I have cancer, if I have lost my job, if things in my relationships um, with my siblings or in my marriage are falling apart, everything has a reason, everything has a purpose, and I assume that that purpose is linear, direct, absolutely you know, uh, convincing, and will be revealed to me one day, this is why you got this. This is why you have cancer. This is why your marriage fell apart. This is why, you know, your parents are mean to you. This is why these bad things happened to you. Because I was doing, bam, this. The problem with that is that that's not a sufficient understanding of what Job is going to recognize in chapter 21. It's not simple cause and effect. It's not just he sinned so he gets busted. God has not built this system around us that is just a life filled with hammers. Oh, you trip that, bam, right? Like Indiana Jones when he's you know, going through the temple and he's all careful. And as soon as he lifts that, that skull head thing off, of, off the, you know, the pedestal, that all this stuff, right? That's not what God has done. He hasn't created a system where it's as simple as you sin, you get busted. Yes, you sin, you will be busted eternally one day. That is clear in Scripture. But in a moment, in a snapshot in this life, it looks a lot like the wicked are getting, getting away with a lot of wickedness. It looks like their prosperity reigns. And unless we are willing to kind of lean in on the sovereignty of God 
and the fear of the Lord and trust in his eternal righteousness, we're going to demand a very specific explanation. God, you got some explaining to do, right? That's the way that we approach our systemization of wickedness and judgment. And that's how Zophar, right? I know I, I keep wanting to make a dad joke about how are we doing so far, right? Like, we won't do that. That's, that's cheesy. So cheesy, right? We just, we just step into this space. So there's two things. I mean, there's two major movements, obviously. One in chapter 20 is Zophar and his explanation or his, his assertion that suffering, right, happens immediately to the wicked. And so suffering then is evidence of wickedness, right? He, he sees it as a direct correlation, Wicked gets the hammer. Job, you get in the hammer. So, you know, if it smells like a wickedness, it acts like a wickedness, it talks like a wickedness, it might be wickedness, right? This, this is Zophar's explanation. Job's response in chapter 21 is going to be, dude, open your eyes. And his world looks a lot like our world. Suffering doesn't necessarily evidence wickedness. There's a lot of wicked people getting by just fine. Any snapshot in any time in human history, and there is wicked, extremely wicked people that seem to be prospering, joyful, and living a pretty good life. That's not the best explanation of why suffering exists in the world. But this is how they're trying to systematize the effect and the reality of wickedness. So far, we'll begin there, and we'll be moving kind of quickly, so just kind of make sure your Bibles are open, because we'll be moving rather quickly, and I'll be summarizing much, even as we move along. He begins, Zophar begins with this first segment in verses 1 through 11, speaking about how the enjoyments of the wicked's life, or, the, or wickedness, finds enjoyments to be short-lived. That, that's going to be his argument, verses 1 through 10. But verses 1 to 3 begin as each one begins with a thought or an introduction to say, how dare you? Look at verse 1. Then Zophar the, the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. He is saying that my thoughts just have to make an answer, and I have to hurry up. My haste is coming out because you're censoring us. And that word means that he is rebuking them or chastising them, and he finds that insulting. And so his spirit is awakened and must respond to what Job has been saying. Particularly, he's talking about how Job, in Job 19, and responding to Bildad, warns Bildad in verse 28 to 29, if you are thinking or if you're saying oh, how we will pursue Job and we will find the root of the matter in him, he's saying, be afraid of the sword, the sword of justice. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. He is saying, be careful, because judgment comes, cuts both ways. If you think you are in judgment of me, recognize that if you are wrong, if I am not in sin, your false accusation rises to sin in the eyes of a holy and just God. Be mindful. And this is what Zophar finds so outrageous and daring. Your censure insults me, and so my spirit was, was in haste, haste to answer you. So how about this momentary enjoyment that he's talking about? Look at verses 4 to 5. Do you not know this, 
from of old, since a man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but for a moment? See, it's momentary. The, the wicked can exult. Yeah, he recognizes that maybe in a snapshot, right? Yeah, the wicked are getting away with stuff. They're winning Super Bowls, right? They're, they're winning offices or they're, you know what I mean? They're, they're making a ton of truckloads of money in their business. Whatever it is, that it's possible for the wicked to exult, to shout out in joy, and that the joy of the godless is there, but it's brief and it's momentary, and then it's gone. He goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds. I think he's talking about his accomplishments and his pride. Verse 7a, he will perish forever like his own dung. What? That's kind of crazy talk, right? This is him saying that even though they think they have done so much, their life will not end with a bang, but with a flush. Right? Like excrement, they will be done away with. That's what's going to happen to them. His whole point is that their memory fades and all their accomplishments are gone. And though they, like the Tower of Babel, wanted to reach to the glory of God, none of that. Verse 7b um, to verse 9 says, you know, even their memory, their significance will fade. Those who have seen him will say, hey, where is that guy? Verse 8. He'll fly away like a dream and not be found. He'll be chased away like a vision of the night. Did you know that, um, at least according to you know, people who study dreams, right? well, our physical ability and our reaction to dream when we sleep, you, you hopefully had a REM cycle. Like you went into a deep sleep. And as you did, your mind wanders and kind of creates kind of this dream world, this spiritual kind of, not spiritual, not you know, actual spiritual, but just not... A mental thing, right? You guys, you guys know, why am I explaining dreams? You guys know what dreams are. You of all of you, and then my point was simply this, all of you had a dream last night, and you woke up, and it just dispersed, it was gone, right? Some of you remember it, because it was like, you know, either shocking or embarrassing. You showed up again at school in your underwear, whatever it was, right? Something happened, and you might have an emotional reaction. You might have, or, or like what I often experience, you kind of wake up, and as you're waking up, you kind of feel like something happened, and then you feel in a certain way, and then it kind of fades, because you're like, I don't know what it was, and it just kind of goes. It literally dissipates in your mind. So I can't tell you what I dreamed last night. I don't know. I, I, I hope it was good. Just like that, how dreams fly away, how they could be chased off and evaporate, that guy's life is gone. His memory is faded. And we don't know him at all. Verse 9 says, The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. In other words, you know, in his area, in the place that he was known to be, no one remembers, sees him. Um, he is just a faded picture. Verse 10 and 11, so this is Zophar continuing on, talking about the short-lived nature, right, of, uh, of, uh, of the judgment. Wait, the, the short-lived nature of the delights of the wicked or the success of the wicked. Verse 10 and 11 talks about his health and his fortune, vice versa, his fortune, then his health. Right? He says in verse 10, His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. He's saying his children will be seeking help from the poor. 
They'll be so poor that they have to ask the poor. They're the beggars to the beggars. And his hands, and probably talking about his children's hands, will have to give back his wealth, meaning that um, whatever ill-gotten wealth that, that that wicked man has left behind, his children have paid that back in full and are now begging themselves. His bones were full of youthful vigor, but will lie down with them in the dust. See, it's saying that, that, that physically he was filled with youth. He was still going strong. He had a premature death. So all of this is Zophar saying, look, the enjoyments of the wicked are short-lived. That this is what we know about their suffering. That it comes upon them quickly and then it leaves quickly. Whatever they might think are the blessings of this life, the fortunes of this life, they come and they go because they are so short-lived. Right? That, that is what God does to the wicked. And he finds that as part of the system that God has created. Secondly, he says their greed is like a sweet poison. Verses 12 through 19. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is low to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach, and it is the venom of cobras within him. Now listen, verses 12 to 14, um, that describes food poisoning to me to a T, right? You guys ever eaten something that you're like, oh man, this is so good, and you, you eat it, you enjoy it, and then a little bit later, like it, it, this food turns in your stomach. And it feels like the venom of cobras within you, right? And you're in bad shape. Well, he is describing this to say that there is an element in which greed, avarice, this desire to, to have and to consume all the material pleasures of this life, that it, it is like a, a poison, but that is sweet. It tastes delicious. You want to savor it. It's not just about consuming. It's about the delight of tasting. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know this, and uh, um, I'm not a huge foodie, but this is one thing that me and uh, Noah found out, right? Um, Noah's the first one to share this with me, but according to chocolatiers, is that a thing? Chocolatiers? No? <laughs> if I say it that way, it sounds like it's a thing, right? People that, that deal in chocolate, you know how you're supposed to eat chocolate? Not like the way that you grew up eating chocolate, like that. That's not how, that's how barbarians eat chocolate, all right? If you want to eat chocolate properly, you take a piece, you put it in your mouth, and you let it melt on the roof of your mouth. You enjoy the melting delight and taste of it, while also noting its constitution and the way, you know, all the different ways that it feels. That's how you're supposed to eat, like, good chocolate. If you're just getting Hershey's, go away, man. Go do it. Do it, right? But that's how you're supposed to You're supposed to savor it. And this is the picture that Zophar is trying to make. He is saying that there is something to savoring this life. Oh, it is so good. It is so delightful. I just want more of it. And I want it to linger on my tongue. I want the taste of it to go on. And he says that taste in the midst of them melting the chocolate on the roof of their mouth turns to venom. Look at 15 through 18. He swallows down riches. This is where he starts to begin to highlight particular sins, right? So he's talking about greed, avarice, riches. And he's saying he swallows down riches, thinking it to be rich and delightful, and then he vomits them up again. God casts these things out of his belly. So two things we notice immediately in verse 15 is that it is riches, it is avarice, it is greed, success. 
that Zilfar is particularly highlighting that is like this sweet poison. But the second thing we notice that it is God that pumps his belly filled with this stuff as a judgment. Verse 16, he will suck the poison of cobras and the tongue of a viper will kill him. You guys totally get what that means. Verse 17, he will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. The idea of this is this is the idyllic view. Like part of being rich is that you are you're you have that place next to the flowing river. And it seems like honey and curds and all kinds of good stuff, beautiful views and excellent things. Your land is good. Like all of that is what he's talking about. He won't have that stuff. He will have that stuff, but it will turn to poison in his system. Verse 18, he will give back the fruit of his toil. He acknowledges that he's probably worked some some effort for this, but it's all gone and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. Verse 19, because he has crushed and abandoned the poor, he has seized the house that he did not build. See, between verses 15, he swallows down riches, and verse 19, he crushes and abandons the poor. He sees the house that he did not build. Like between those two things, we get an idea of where Zophar has landed in terms of wondering why Job is encountering such pain. It's your greed. It's your avarice. In fact, it is your oppression of the poor. See, he's implying that Job has profiteered from the the vulnerability of those that are poor. He's Ebenezer Scrooge in Christmas Carol. Or for you 20-somethings and younger, he's Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales. See, the older guys don't even know what that is, right? He's just a version of Scrooge. The idea is that he has gotten rich off the back, off the work, and off the, um, the vulnerabilities of the poor. Can I say this because it's important? The Old Testament in particular, but scripture throughout, is so replete with how the godly, the righteous, and how God Himself cares for the weak and vulnerable. That is true, right? Orphans and widows is a phrase that comes up again and again. Um, when we get to November, we celebrate the first Sunday of November, we celebrate um, uh, Orphan Sunday or Adoption Sunday. Um, and we talk about how, even as believers, we are to defend the rights of the vulnerable, the unborn, right? Those that have no moms and dads, we, we are to be part of that. And that's throughout Scripture. Leviticus 19 tells the, the nation of Israel that they are to not strip down all of the vineyard, right, when they harvest. They're supposed to leave a little section in the corners and the edges. Why? So the poor can come and harvest and eat. That's, that's built into what they're supposed to do on a normal basis, right? Psalm 72, 12 to 14 says that God delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who, who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. God cares about those that cannot take care of themselves. And it can go on and on. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. There's so many passages that we could go to that speak of how God stands for the oppressed. This is exactly what Zophar is saying. Job, this is probably you. As a doctor, right? Zophar being a doctor um, of understanding suffering and wickedness, right? As a professor, 
all right, as a, um, as a student of these things, his conclusion is you have an issue with greed and oppression, and this is the sweet poison that God has allowed you to drink. Your life was super good for a while, Job, all right? No one greater than you in the East. But now look at you. Why is this happening? I can only tell you that nine times out of ten, right, um, this is the reason why. So he sees it as a direct correlation. Everything happens for a reason, including your suffering, right? And so verses 20 through 29, he says, Suffering, Zophar's conclusion is that suffering is indeed evidence of God's wrath. And sinfulness, all right, is why God's divine justice has come. Verse 20 and 21, he talks about um, uh, an insatiable appetite. He says, because he knew no contentment in his belly, he's talking about the sinner now, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. Read on, verse 22. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him in his body, into his body. See, so he is saying that there is almost an insatiability to the greed, to the avarice, that, that this individual, that this wicked man that Zophar is describing, he just keeps wanting more. He's eaten everything and he needs more. Right, that, that famous Rockefeller quote in his deathbed. How much more does it take? You're already crazy rich and you're dying. How much more do you need? One more dollar. It's always one more dollar. Sin has a grip upon us. We call that idolatry. We call it idolatry because it seems to enslave us unto its worship. Certain sins draw us in. In fact, all sins at some point begin to draw us in. And what we chose to do in our delight turns around and becomes our enslavement. This is the kind of thing that Zophar rightly has seen. And he's saying this is what happens to them. They are trapped by their own appetites. It's in the fullness of his sufficiency that he becomes distressed. And he uses that term fullness again in verse 23 to say, yeah, his belly will be full, full of God's wrath and anger. His burning anger will be poured into that insatiable appetite for sin. Listen, there there is some truth to what he's saying. Not some truth. There's truth in what he's saying, right? That sin has that kind of grip on, on us. And that having that grip on us means that, uh, um, that, that it can enslave us and keep us. And that God's wrath does abide on such things. Those are all true. But he's leaning that in a way that's overly particular and is directed at Job. God's wrath. Oh, suffering is direct evidence of God's wrath. Verse 24. He will flee from an iron weapon. Nobody knows what this iron weapon might be, right? But it's a weapon of war. And a bronze arrow will strike him through. This is where it gets a little bit graphic. So a bronze arrow will strike him through. And then it's drawn forth, pulled out, comes out of the body. And the glittering point comes out, uh, comes out of his gallbladder, probably his liver. Terrors come upon him. He is about to be the slain in battle. God has struck him with his arrow. 
And then divine condemnation in verse 26 to 28. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasure. His new treasure is going to be utter darkness. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. You know, the New Testament talks about utter darkness and a fire that cannot be quenched, right? Jesus uses those terms quite frequently to describe hell itself. And it was so far as saying, verse 27, the heavens will reveal his inequity and earth will rise up against him. Heaven and earth both will testify to the wickedness of that man. In verse 28, the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Does that sound like anybody in the room? That's exactly Job, right? This is him making sure that he has kind of, you know, been poetic being, you know, literary about how he gets to it, but he's going to get there. And his main point is that, Job, this is you. The possessions of the house of the wicked will be taken away. You lost everything. How coincidental. They'd be dragged off in a single day that demonstrates God's wrath. And Job, how funny. That's exactly you. Just like what happened to Job. There's no room, you notice, in both... Bildad's speech we looked at last, no, two weeks ago, and Zophar's speech for repentance or renewal. This is just the reality of your life, Job. This is what the wicked get. And I'm not sure exactly what that wickedness is, but I have a pretty good idea. Your greed has caught up to you, and God is feeding your greed with judgment. Verse 29 is his conclusion. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. The unkindness of his words is both ingenious and remarkable to me. This is the wicked man's portion, right? He has just said that in a single day of God's wrath, he will lose everything. And he can look at Job, and I don't know if he's smiling, but he's saying, Job, this is you. And then he says, the heritage decreed for him by God. This kind of suffering... This is all the heritage you get. You won't have children. You won't have a name. No one will remember you for anything good. This is how you'll be remembered. That God has decreed his judgment upon you. So see, for him, it's a direct one-to-one relationship. You sin, you get the hammer. You do good, you get some blessing. It's just simple like that. And the judgment comes quickly. Don't be surprised, Job. Yeah, I know sometimes the wicked are doing good for a moment, but it's only a moment, and the judgment comes swiftly. Job's response. We have 15 minutes for this, but we can do it. His response is that suffering cannot be the evidence of any individual's righteousness or sinfulness. How does he do that? He's attacking, right, their formulaic closed box system of God having created a moral order in this world that is so rigid that you're a sinner, that's why you get this. You're doing good, that's why you get this. And and if you haven't caught it at this point, and you should have, it's a system of religion that is not any different from any other system of religious works. It's what's happened to the Pharisees by the time we get to the New Testament and, uh, intera- and Jesus' interactions with them. They are so convinced, how dare you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Their people are just categorized. They're, they're going to get it. 
You shouldn't sit or be near them. Why? Because, right? Wrath is about to fall on those fools. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Swindlers, adulterers, or even a tax collector like that dude who dares to come into your presence to pray? Who does Jesus condemn more than anyone else in the New Testament? The Pharisees and the scribes. The religious leaders. This is the peddling of religious notions that are absolutely right under the sun. This is what it looks like if all of our righteousness is really a matter of what did you do and what what didn't you do. What you do and what you didn't do matters. Don't get that wrong. Galatians makes it clear that what a man sows, so he will reap. But even in saying that, there's room for the most wicked human beings to be adopted, to be cleansed, and to be accepted into the arms of our Heavenly Father. That's you. That's me. And that's where the fear of the Lord has faded and the fear of man has taken over their religious beliefs. Job's reply, in a nutshell, his argument is this. You're saying that bad things happen to bad people, good things only happen to good people. And I agree, ultimately, bad things happen to bad people. But look around. There are some bad people that end their lives pretty well. It may not come at all in this life. You cannot deduce the spiritual state of a man or a woman from their current happiness or prosperity or their present suffering. Christopher Ash, I'm quoting him from his excellent commentary. He begins by saying, there is such thing as innocent suffering, and he's talking about himself. Job begins, and as each respondent does, they speak about, hey, listen up, listen to me. This is the reason why you should listen to me. So verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words, and let's, let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. That's a great translation in the ESV. He, when he says, let this be your comfort, he's not saying, let this comfort you. He's saying, no, you're supposed to be my comforters. He's already said out loud that you guys are bad comforters, right? That's what they've come to do because he's suffering. They've come to comfort him. And he's saying, let this be the comfort that you give me. Just listen to me for a moment. It's the pleading of saying, look at what's happening to my life. Can you just pause and heard with me a moment. And hear my plea for, for, for help and understanding and empathy. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I've spoken, then you could turn the mocking, you know, switch back on. You can come at me again. Look, the Proverbs and the wisdom literature in the Old and New Testament speak often. right? James 1.19 says, um, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Not quick to speak. We're usually antsy, waiting for our turn to speak. It's saying, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. And there's some good and excellent, right? God-inspired um, wisdom in that. Job is saying, just listen and just empathize. Verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? 
Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. He's saying, one, that his ultimate complaint isn't against other human beings. This is God's doing in his life. And so he finds himself impatient because he knows that God is supposed to be on his side. I don't get this. He says, so look at me and instead of judging me, be appalled. Put a hand over your mouth, right? Because when I remember everything that has taken place in my life, I'm dismayed and I start to shudder, right? That's how you should be responding. And let's make it clear. Job, throughout the book of Job, from God's perspective, is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's literally the phrase in Job 1.8 that God uses to describe him to Satan. He's a good man. And he's suffering. This isn't supposed to happen in the general rules of cause and effect. And he just, he wants to know why God has allowed this. But he's saying, dude, but this is what God has allowed. So be appalled. Cover your mouth. Be careful. And feel my pain. The point is there are things that are outside of our ability, our reach, our capacities, our cleverness, suffering can often remind us that we are not God. We are not a God. We are not demigods. We need the one true God. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, you don't really, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Suffering isn't always, right, because of wickedness. Sometimes it's a means of grace to bring us back to spiritual sanity. Job is dismayed, and he's saying, you should be dismayed, right? And his point is that the way that God deals with us, all of us, is more complicated than simply cause and effect. He goes on to give evidence for this, right, by saying that the innocent, um, the innocent suffer. But the wicked often prosper, all right? Verse, verse, starting in verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? This is the key question that Job has. In fact, this is not a question that just Job has, but the psalmist often questions this, right? Different prophets question this. And let me give you a good example of a godly attitude that is asking this exact question. Jeremiah 12, 1 through 2. Listen how Jeremiah broaches this. He says, he begins with who God is. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. They're religious hucksters. And you're letting them grow strong and thrive in this world. They're prospering. And even as he's asking that, do you realize his humility and recognizing you're righteous? I know that. So when I'm complaining to you, let me plead my case. But just so we're clear, you are God and I am not. See, that's the path of wisdom. That's the path that Job is trying to take. He is falling off the horse sometimes, and he is starting to say, Lord, you kind of owe me this explanation. Jeremiah does not do that. He's saying, I would love to know why this is happening, but I know that you are God and I am not. 
Why do the wicked prosper is the question. Verses 8 through 13. Their offspring are established in their presence. So now we're talking about the wicked, happy family. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. In other words, they have kids and their kids probably have kids. Their houses are safe from fear. Isn't that what we all want for our homes? Security, safety, no rod of God is upon them. God's not pouring judgment upon them yet. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. I didn't even know calves was a verb. But it means they have little baby cows, right? They send out their little boys like flock, meaning that they have a bunch of kids and grandkids, boys. Their children dance. I love when children dance. It's cute. Not that fun when adults dance. Kind of gets weird, right? They sing to the tambourine and the lyre. There is joyful music. They rejoice to the sound of the pipe. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. You know, this is a commercial like for Marriott. They're having a good time. The kids are laughing, right? It's not, it's not even realistic to life. They're probably complaining about the sand. And stuff, but instead, everyone's having a good time. The music's going. The house is secured. The cattle, right, are they're breeding well. Children are ex- exponentially growing. And everything seems to be going well. They're prospering. And even Sheol, the place of the dead, the grave, even when they go down to Sheol, they go down in peace. Job is not making a case that everything is just arbitrary and there's no more order. No, he is, he is merely pointing out that circumstances cannot be the final test to determine morality, righteousness, or judgment. And their insistence that everything is exactly cause and effect, all right, can't explain these things. Verse 14 through 16. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. See, this demonstrates how much they mock Right? The Almighty. Verse 15. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job is saying, I don't even get the wicked. Their attitude towards all of their prosperity is, man, we don't need you. What are you doing evangelizing me? You should be evangelizing yourself. Evangelizing yourself to be more successful because I am successful and you are not. Who cares about the Almighty? Why should we serve Him? Why should I pray? And Job is saying, listen, if religion is purely a matter of of recompense and retribution, what what does it say about God that the unrighteous live so well on occasion? Everything that is said, and this is what we mean by wisdom literature, must always be undergirded by the fear of God. Everything that has been said by Job or his friends must, must include who God is and what he does. And so by implication, if Job's friends are saying, hey, listen, Job, clearly you are in sin because that's how God works. He's very simple. You know, you do bad stuff. He pours bad stuff into your life. And you must have done some serious bad stuff because this this is seriously bad in your life. It begins to implicate God. It begins to speak about the nature of God. Right? And that's the danger that Job is warning them against. And that's exactly the danger that Jeremiah is refusing or is, is mindful of when he says, I know you're righteous, you're just, 
and nothing gets away, right? No one gets away with anything in your eyes. But I'm just wondering why the wicked are prospering, right? You have to begin and end with who God is and that He is God and we are not. And when judges, human judges like you and me, start to determine in other people what is righteous and unrighteous, we start to usurp the authority of God in their lives. And this is why Job has warned them that this is a bad thing. Verse 17, how, how, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is um, put out? I'm sorry, this is the next section, right? The wicked go unpunished. Let me just read this whole section to you. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that the calamity comes upon them? Is, is, it, is it instantaneous? Is it always? That God distributes pain in his anger. That they are like straw before the wind, like chaff that the storm carries away. Just like Psalm 1. The wicked are supposed to be chaff that are blown away. He says, does that always happen? Job is implying that it doesn't. Verse 19, you say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Well, then let him pay it out to them that they can know it. What good is it that God is going to punish the children? Let them pay, pay out that, let God pay out that punishment on them. Let their own eyes, verse 20, see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Let God deal with them directly. Verse 21, for what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? They're gone. They don't care what happens after that. Will any, verse 22, will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in barrenness of soil, of soul, sorry, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. He is saying, look, you see the wicked and they're getting away with stuff. That breaks your whole formula. And he's saying, I'm not questioning God. We don't tell God what to do. And Job's simple point is that both the wealthy wicked and the poor righteous, they all go down to death. This is the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a vanity to life under the sun. Right? And if you're not a Christian, I, I can understand, right, that calculating sinister kind of um, motivation to say, well, if there isn't a God, I might as well cheat, steal, do whatever it takes to get ahead. Because what really stops you? And Job is not arguing for anarchy. He is saying that when all is said and done, don't you see it that only God is in control? And so we can't determine if a guy is righteous just because, because he's rich, Right? Or if he's unrighteous, just because he's poor. You know, are you sick? Are you struggling with illness? Some of our members are. It's not necessarily judgment. Are you doing well? Your job is secure financially. You're able to do things for your family and to bless those around you. That's not necessarily God's blessing. Because sickness can be a measure of grace to bring us back to dependence upon Him. We remember our God when we remember our mortality and our absolute lack of control, especially over physical health. Because wealth can be a curse, a curse of anxiety and striving and false confidence in our abilities to provide security and hope, all these things that we can only find in God. So Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, great proverb. It says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor, nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's saying there's a wisdom when we think about who God is to accept whatever is, whatever is our portion in this life. And it's a difficult lesson to learn, but that's Job's point. We're not God, so we don't determine who's right and wrong based on what we think is right and wrong. We trust that the Lord is doing what he does, so we're compassionate to those that are suffering, right? And we are thoughtful to those that are unrighteous and unwise to bring them back to the knowledge of who God is. The final thing, verse 27 to 34. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, he's anticipating the argument, Okay, where, where's the house of the prince? Where's the tent in which the wicked live? What are you talking about? Who's the rich, wealthy person? And Job is saying, have you not asked those who travel the roads? He's saying, have you, don't you listen to the news? Do you not accept their testimony? Do you not follow these dudes on Twitter? Don't you, these guys are crazy rich, wicked rich, right? They're everywhere. The evil man is spared in the day of his calamity, verse 30. He is rescued in the day of his wrath, Right? Verse 31, who declares his way to his face and repays him for what he has done? He's still carrying on. Verse 32, when he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. See, everything that Bildad and, and Zophar had said about the unrighteous, they'll be forgotten. There's a lot of unrighteous that are elevated, remembered long after their death. The clouds of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those, ho- those who go before him are innumerable. He has followers even after his death. How then will you comfort me with, with, with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. He's saying your system breaks down as easily as we just, we just look to see the wicked around us. They prosper. They go down well, right? And there's world leaders that are celebrated and enjoyed and worshipped, in fact. Religious leaders, false religious leaders that are worshipped because they are great, venerated, right? Righteous and excellent. It's all false. So if we are suffering, how are we to understand who God is and whether, again, we come to the same point again. God is real. We believe that. Job believes that. His friends believe that. But God is for me. That's the part of faith that can be challenging to believe. When things aren't working out well for you, when when that American dream seems unachievable, when, when the things that you hope for in this life, those successes, those, those milestones don't seem to come, not to your life, to everyone else it seems like, but not to you. And when you're struggling with all that stuff, how are you supposed to understand that God is for you? And I, can, I can't answer all of that, but I can give you one singular answer. You know, because he sent his son to die in your place. This is the answer of Romans 5, right? Hope never disappoints us or puts us to shame. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Spirit in Jesus Christ. In other words, I I can't tell you why all these bad things happen in the course of this life. Part of it is to remind us that we are mortal and not God. But in the midst of all of it, if you're wondering, is God for me? All you have to do is look at the cross. He has sent his only son, perfect and holy and righteous and undeserving of any suffering. 
the innocent one who suffered all things that you deserve to suffer for an eternity. And he did that so you might be free. And that's how the love of God is poured out in our hearts in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's where Job will eventually lead us. That there is a redeemer. Remember we saw that last week? My redeemer lives. He will be here one day and I will behold him in my flesh and my own eyes will see that he is my redeemer. It points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unending wisdom of your word. And Lord, we recognize very honestly that we don't always understand everything that happens in the course of our lives. Give us the humility and the willingness, Lord, to believe that you are still God. And even if everything goes wrong in the rest of our days on earth, your evidence of love for us is found in the cross. Lord, every person here, may they be convinced of this so that they would turn to Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation and security, for joy and true spiritual prosperity. We pray for these things, that we would delight in You and You alone, even in the questioning of the things around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.